0: Hi, I'm Dan Cottrell, editor of Rugby Coach Weekly. You're about to jump into one of our podcasts. If you want to find out more about this podcast and also all of the great content, drills, activities, games and advice on the website, then go over to www.rugbycoachweekly.net. I hope you enjoy the podcast.
1: Be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with Head Coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with me, Dan Cottrell. I am editor of Rugby Coach Weekly, and I am delighted to welcome onto the podcast, Shane Pill. Welcome uh, again, Shane, after a few technical difficulties.
1: Thank you for the invitation to be on your program.
0: Well, we hope that the internet stays stable, even though we might be touching on a few controversial subjects. Um, So uh, Shane, just a brief introduction to Shane. Uh, He is Associate Professor in Physical Education and Sport at Flinders University, Australia. Received the 2016 Australian Government Award for Outstanding Contributions to Student Learning and is the author of the popular Play With Purpose Resources for Teachers and Coaches. He is still coaching, uh, he is still playing squash, and he has written uh, many academic papers around sports coaching, and sports learning, and around the topics that we're going to be talking about, which is going to be around games and games-based approaches, in sports. So I'm going to jump straight in with the first question. And do we need to separate the different terminology for using games in training? Because we have lots of um, ideas or thoughts which might be a constraint lens approach, uh, teaching games for understanding, game sense, gamification, games based approach. So, Shane, do we need to separate them out?
1: That depends on who the we are. Oh, you've frozen again. You're back? Yeah, I'm back. Oh, good. Uh, That depends on who the we is. From a practitioner perspective, I'd say, no, we don't. I don't know uh, any of the coaches that I've worked with and mentored that go into a training session, go into a season and say, we're using a TGFU model this season. And they go in and they put a program in front of the players and they explain the efficacy of the program in a language that the players are going to um, understand. But the players, you know, really are not concerned about whether they're using TGFU, game Sense, tactical games, game competency model, CLA, whatever it is. You know, they're concerned that the coach is going to be able to develop a game plan and develop them to be able to work within that game plan. Uh, the So from a practitioner perspective, Probably not. We don't need to be concerned about what it's called. We need to be concerned that we're putting in place a pedagogical mix that will optimise the environment for the player's long-term development. The, the we, though, if they're researchers and theorists and the, uh, the objective of the researcher is to validate, improve, extend, elaborate um, proof of concept, the theory that helps to explain the practice and the nuance to the language, so that it is consistent with the theoretical model or the um, epistemological positioning that they are trying to test, validate, explore, um, put out there as a proof of concept. Then yes, it does matter to them because they have a they have a different objective. Their objective is that theory and working in that theory and testing that theory under as many conditions as possible to. See whether the theory holds up, see where the gaps in the theory exist in order to refine and improve the theory. So it depends on who the we is as to whether the, the nomenclature is, is important or not.
0: So I'm, a, um, I'm thinking about going out onto the pitch. Uh, and we go onto the pitch um, and we are starting to coach, yet um, behind us is all this chatter around our approaches do we need to be thinking, ah, actually, I need to change my approach or can we just carry on as we are without having to delve back into all this theoretical underpinning?
1: Whether we have to change is whether we're, the approach that we're taking is producing an optimal environment for the players. If, if there are changes that we can make that will lead to better outcomes for the players, then we should change because we desire better outcomes for our players, whether that's tactical and technical outcomes, whether that's relational outcomes, because we're concerned with developing better people, the, you know, we're, we're there as servants to the people in the game. And as servants to people in the game, our objective is to help both be better tomorrow than what they are today. So do we need to change really as a matter of being able to assess uh, objectively whether we... Are doing the best for our players and you know the the club in general. Uh, if we can be better, and I personally think we can all be better, and maybe that's the Catholic in me, and so we're all born broken and we can improve. That if we if we are concerned with our players being better, we should be concerned with ourselves being better. So we're always asking questions about. Where can I tinker? Where can I refine? Where can I uh, improve? In which case it becomes a matter of uh, being rational and, and objective around the changes that we make. The, with junior sport, you know, globally we have a, an issue with a decline in movement competence over the last 30 or 40 years and a decrease in people's uh, physical activity capability, including, you know, what we might call fitness. Kids today are less movement capable. That's what the research is telling us. And part of the um, objective, therefore, is to coach for the current environment, not what the environment was 20 or 30 years ago. So our coaching approaches need to reflect the people that we have in front of us. And young people today are socialized very differently from my generation. My generation was the TV generation. My father's generation TVs were just coming in. They were more of the radio generation. Kids today grow up with digital devices and enhanced connectivity in their hands uh, from a very early age. And they're, they're with devices that show them how to learn and provide information just when they need it and not information from one source. They provide information from multiple sources, including going to YouTube and seeing how other people have solved the problem that's in front of them. So in one sense... The, the role of a teacher is more knowledge navigator because the knowledge is so more readily available for people today than it's ever been before but what is useful knowledge what is valuable knowledge what is valid knowledge and what is junk is where a lot of people need assistance to chart that through and then packaging that up so that it becomes a learning environment is something that some you know that a teacher and a coach is trained to be able to do which a person looking at that information may not be able to then, created environment where that information translates to an improvement in their practice um so it's complicated to know if we need to improve and that's where the role of coach developers and coach mentors in situ with coaches is so so valuable rather than uh, the standard model of people going out doing a coach's course and someone says this is the model that you should be using um this is the theory that sits behind the model it's does it work for that person in their practice with that group of players? Well, we don't know till we're walking in that coach's shoes. And that's what um, what I think the best coach developers and coach educators do. They go and attempt to walk in those coaches' shoes. So you've got to, I mean, apart from the, the
0: fact that you are writing and talking and teaching uh, the, the way that... Uh, we should maybe approach our coaching. You're actually out there coaching yourself, and do you think you've changed? Uh, I mean, obviously you've changed a lot since you've started to bring in games-based coaching into your uh, into what you've been doing, and perhaps you can talk about that in a moment. But also, in the last four or five years, how much have you changed?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. In the last four or five Years, I don't know that I have changed so much as being uh, focused on the application of the ideas to the context that I'm in. What I mean there, I've got to work with where the coach is at, and it's not my role to come in as a as a senior assistant coach who's been appointed to help the coach improve their practice because the outcomes are not where the club or the coach wishes them to be. Um, I've got to try and nudge. I've got to try and engage. It's much longer-term process and, you know, for example, this year, uh, a number of times with a coach that I was working with, um, I would hear that they couldn't do a particular activity because of their gender and I kept saying, it's not a gendered conversation. I was working with a female football program. It's not a gendered conversation. It's where these players are at in their long-term development and it's an assessment of whether they're ready for this task complexity or not. It's not a gendered issue. It's not a, it's not a biological basis for them not being able to do a particular act, activity. Um, flip a few months earlier. The, I was, in one of the first training sessions, asked to put in a um, an activity that would teach ball movement pattern out of our defensive fifty, so out of the back third. And so I did a fairly standard activity. This is a senior women's program, and the... Uh, the team manager walked past and said, never seen our players doing an activity like that before. Pardon? Oh, this never seen them playing this sort of game, sort of scenario-based before. This is really good. I reckon the players will enjoy that. Um, it took a... Even though I had the opportunity to, to do that and, and given my head, so to speak, that particular night, it wasn't something that the coach consistently allowed me to do the coach kept coming back to open and closed drills in particular open drills which had a lot of um, familiarity in terms of there might be some oppositional um, pressure defensive pressure in there but it was pretty much the one solution beat that defender put the ball there beat that defender run there Um, there wasn't the complexity of decision making that you that you get in the actual game scenarios and uh, I had to take that coach on a journey to understand both how to, why to um, put into place you know, game-based, more game-based training. Uh, the other club that I worked with this year, the, the coach took the um, opportunity to let me take more of the training uh, about a third of the way through the season so that she could actually spend more one-on-one time with the players. And so I started with small-sided, nine-a-side football with a particular developmental focus. We went through a couple of different phases in that developmental focus. And and the players kept coming up going, oh, this is so much better for training. I'm so much more enjoying training since we started with games. And, and that's, that's what I want to hear from the players, that there's a joy in coming to training because training's working with what motivates them to be involved in the sport, which is play. And so using... It's not that I'm necessarily using those starting games um, for the purpose of initiating learning. Sometimes those starting games are actually there to recall um, or to consolidate or test that the players have the learning that we expect before we introduce the challenge point for that program. In that regard, I'm heavily influenced by some of the work of Rick Charlesworth that was introduced in some of the coaching work that I did in the 1990s and, Um, It was in the early 1990s that I moved from more open to closed drill with a game at the end, um, structure towards start with small-sided games, assess the players for what development needs are there, base more of your training on match simulation so the players have experienced the scenarios that are going to be put in front of them in a game so that in one sense the game is familiar to them, they've been I mean, every situation in a game is unique. It's, it's unique to that first time, but there's also a familiarity to that pattern because they've been involved in that pattern many times at training. So I moved to much more of that uh, match simulation type experience and experienced success with the football teams that I was coaching, experienced success when I was bringing it into my physical education programs at one school in particular. Uh, that I'm reminded of a low socioeconomic school, started there as the head of department. The existing teacher said, we need to change our practice because kids are not coming to school on the day. They've got PE. There's large numbers of kids sitting out. They're, they're just not interested in it. I said, well, I've been playing around with this idea of the game sense approach in the school that I've just come from. Uh, this is all about it. So we um, started to trial it, started to PD internally, the teachers. Teachers worked around it and... Um, The year that I started at the school, we had four kids doing Year 12 PE, um, which is uh, elective-based post-compulsory PE. The year that I finished at that school to go to another one to become a deputy principal, we had 22 kids out of a class of 54. So we'd gone from four kids out of a class, uh, Year 12 cohort of 50-odd, to 22 kids out of a Year 12 cohort. Massive increase. Kids were more engaged in physical education. We went from one semester in year 11 to two semesters, a full year of PE in year 11 because of the demand. We got an elective subject in at year nine because of the demand. We got a massive uptick in the number of students playing school sport and I got the school's first ever, first 18 football team about four years um, into the school. Um, Now, these things were a result of the pedagogical change that we made that worked with the motivation that people have, which is play. And we used that to um, either deliberately recall for consolidation, introduce the stretch for the learning to occur, and then it became really the, uh, the mastery of the teacher to know what the individualization out of the game needed to be in terms of different types of practices to upskill them so we, so we could look at our, our class or our football team, our soccer team, in terms of where are the differential learning needs and how will I structure so that those differential learning needs are going to be catered for. And in, in Australian football over here, we often call that now craft work, where they'll break out into isolated practice to work on an aspect of their craft, which is not naturally being picked up just by playing the game because they're um, very refined technical elements such as if I want to put my opponent off balance at a contest, I'll get underneath his armpit, lift, and then roll out to take a ball away. I've never met a player who just does that instinctively. They've had someone either model it for them and point it out to them or it's been directly coached. Um, So there's a time and a place for all of the different teaching styles the the mastery of the coach is knowing the learning need of the individual, the task that's going to deliver on that learning need, and the pedagogy for the task that optimises the learning outcome.
0: So within that, I mean, there's there's lots to unpick from there. But right at the end, you've indicated that we cannot play um, one game from the start of the session to the end of the session. So within that, there are there are and an amount of different types of games. When I say different types of games, not uh, uh, we're going from game A to game B to game C to game D, where they're just the same game, but maybe with one different rule. Each game has a very specific outcome, not specific outcome, maybe that's wrong, but they have a very specific purpose with a potential number of outcomes. And the second thing is that um, games cannot teach everything Um, or effectively teach everything. So let's just go back to the first one, is that what's the difference between the types of games? Because, okay, we've got a game that you play that you'd play in a match against another team, which is not to do with training. And then uh, you're sort of of working your way back from that to smaller versions of that. Uh, You've called them match simulations. What other types of games are there in,
1: in your training, yeah, Eric Worthington, back in nineteen seventy four, I think it was, in his teaching soccer book, has a a um, was it I want to call it a hierarchy because he he puts it from the bottom going up to, I guess from drills up to the full game that you play. So there are modified versions of the game. There might be a a phase practice where. Uh, For example, in Australian football, I might want to work on the defensive midfield transition. That's a particular phase of play. So I'm going to establish a game where we just play out that phase of play. Or it could be match simulation where I've got a particular ball movement pattern that goes from uh, right from turnover in a particular part of ground until we get into a scoring position. And I will start from that turnover because I want to simulate the running patterns of the players in order to be able to get the ball into a particular position to score with a particular player, and we've got a movement pattern to enable that to occur. Down to uh, back in when I was at Teachers College, we would call them modified games. They might now be called scaled games because they're smaller numbers. Um, So we know we might start with six-a-side football in our warm-up, That six-a-side football might have the condition in there that um, uh, there is no fair catch, there is no mark, you have to play on continuously because our developmental program is in speed of ball movement. So we have a similar condition in our very first small-sided game to mirror the developmental focus that we're working with uh, and the technical and tactical aspects of that, which will be developed through our training program. So I don't have the capacity to bring up on the screen Eric Worthington's Model, but I think that's one that's really uh, useful. I'll put
0: it in the blurb.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's a really useful um, figure to illustrate the different types of games coaches can use and the purpose of those games.
0: So you're talking there about a lot about movement and the the way that we want to play. But if we take ourselves back to, and this might be answered with uh, the second half of my question, which was about. Play, taking the players out. Uh, a game itself requires the players to do some basic actions such as um, my Aussie rules is not so good but I'm assuming that uh, there's uh, there's catch and pass and kick. Now if a player is unable to kick the ball very well then or catch the ball then whatever you simulate every time the ball goes to them that's the game is going to grind to a halt because they can't do things. So how are you going to help develop that part of their game? Because obviously, they'll need to be able to catch. Uh, they'll need to be able to catch and then make a decision afterwards. But if they can't catch the ball, they can't make the next decision. So how, how do we break that down and build that into a games-based approach?
1: We can scale the games so that there is different technical models there. Sorry, mate, you've frozen again. So I just want to check that we're still recording. I know no, you're good. You're good. Ah, you're frozen you're good. on my screen. Um, okay, so give a practical example. One coach that I worked with got his football club. Um, all the students, all the players at under 13s and under 14s didn't practice as an under 13 team and an under 14 team. And they'd sort of been um, graded for differentiated practice. And so the warm-up game, they went into those, let's call them yellow, green and purple. And everyone that was graded at purple, they played the warm-up game. Everyone graded at green, everyone graded at amber. And there would be different technical um, skill requirements depending upon the group that you're in. The other way that to do it, of course, is sometimes players need to be removed from the play and they need concentrated work on that um, technical capability before they return to play. Um So there's no one solution to it. It depends on the context of the coach. But I think the broader perspective that you introduce is that if everybody's doing exactly the same thing, the coach is implying that every player is at exactly the same developmental readiness. There will be a time when we want everybody to practice together because it's about bringing our team into symmetry. And as uh, Grahanya and others talk about, Um, you need to practice together in order to have that anticipation of what your player is going to do within the action rule. So there will be a time when everybody needs to practice together. But outside of that time, if we're not differentiating for the challenge points of the players that we've got, those that are not ready or or at at a lower level than other players, they're going to be highly anxious because they know they can't do it and they don't want to be exposed that they can't do it. So eventually they'll drift away because it's too hard for them. So we need to have scaled back challenge points for them to feel, um, yes, I can meet this challenge.
0: Hi, guys. You might notice that there might be a change in quality of the recording from now on because just as Shane was completing that sentence, uh, the internet broke down again. So we reconvened back on Skype and this is the result. So he might just be repeating a little bit of what he said, but we are continuing with the podcast.
1: And hey, we're back. The... <laughs> Different look. There'll be a time when everybody needs to practice together to have the, the team symmetry. But if a coach has everybody doing the same thing at the same time all the time, the coach is in essence saying everybody's at the same developmental readiness, which we know is a nonsense. So differentiation, differential practice needs to be part of the coach's toolkit and deciding on you know, how they're going to group learners into similar challenge points and be constructing the game. If it's not a game, whatever task the learning task is for that particular group of, of learners. And uh, with a with a senior coaching program and with adolescents, that might be what we call craft work at the end of training, where we have different groups working on different aspects of their technical toolkit, depending, yeah. Um, I'll use an Australian football example because that's my sport. We might have a group working on one-step kicking because uh, our ball movement pattern relies on speed of ball movement and they're not very good with uh, with one-step kicking. So we're working on that with another group. And they fumble the ball when it's on the ground. The ball spends a lot of time on the ground in Australian football. So you need to be um, clean in taking possession first go when the ball is on the ground. So they're working on ground ball pickups might have another group that uh, has poor tackling technique they could be working on that aspect of the game so there there are different um, elements of the players movement toolkits that have been working on based on where the developmental targets are for those groups so that those uh, breakout groups
0: then uh, what would that look like that would that be a game would that be what we might Set called a drill what, what what are you expecting to do in those breakout groups
1: yeah this is a this is a challenging question and it comes down to how do you define a game yeah if i'm at a low level of movement development a game could be simply the first to get to 5 whatever the 5 is or the game could be the first to knock over a target or the first to do something or You'll get a point if you achieve this. And it becomes a game, it becomes a challenge, either myself or against another player. But a player who has a well developed movement toolkit will look at that challenge point and go, that's a drill. That's that's pretty boring. That's just a drill because the challenge point is not right for them. So the notion of what is a game, when we're working with really, really young kids and we're just learning the uh, ability to throw, being the first to throw. 10 times to your partner so that it is roughly where their um, chin is and they can catch the ball. And the first first to do that 10 times is the winner. That's a game. But it's going to be a closed drill for someone who can throw the ball really well. Sometimes we get caught up in the notion of a game is the game, that football, soccer, netball, basketball. But a game is really anytime you challenge someone to a competition. So we can make those craft activities a competition and therefore a game. Uh, but I'm still to be convinced that necessarily that has to be the case to get the best learning outcome, particularly if they're at a early stage of skill acquisition and we need them to really engage um you know, the prefrontal cortex. So they're concentrating on the technical aspects so that they understand it fully. And my, my understanding of um, skill acquisition from a neurological point of view is that things become you know, what we might call autonomous when the neural pathways are so well established that the prefrontal cortex can be bypassed. If we're learning something new and we have to give it our full attention, then the prefrontal cortex gets involved again. So... Um, From a science perspective, we're trying to think about do I need them to concentrate on the elements so therefore the prefrontal cortex will be involved um, or is this um, already fairly well habituated and so we can get it into a bit of a game. So it's a really complex, um, at one level, it's really complex decision making about is it a game, is it a drill because it comes into where is the challenge point of the individual and will they see this as a game or will they? go well this is this is easy this is just a drill
0: so we're trying to create uh, sorry i was going to interrupt there now uh, uh habitual is a really interesting word i think because within a game um and if you're playing uh close to a match simulation you may be creating within that game good habits and bad habits um yet yeah, in a, in an exercise where you are say it's just 1v1 and you can see where the hands are or where the foot is you can you can get lots of repetitions in now immediately anyone listening in who's been thinking about this a lot will see that there's quite a lot of danger in my in my language there because you're not trying to replicate an exact movement every single time when an expert a person who may be um look they looked at maybe uh um i think it's an ironmonger, but it's not that's not the person someone's striking striking something uh, repetitively they don't do exactly the same thing as an expert they're slightly changing every single time so how do we create those good habits if for instance in a game they may be only touching the ball three times in every four or five minutes just because of the whole movement of the game or if you go the other extreme where you drill where you're touching the ball 30 times but you're just practicing the same thing over and over again where where do we find that uh, that goldilocks outcome
1: so my understanding is that there's no single movement model because we're all unique individuals and you can see that in in cricket you know bowlers run up the footfall is pretty much in the same location every time they do the run-up, but it's not in exactly the same location. Otherwise, there'd never be a no ball if it would be in exactly the same position every time they're at the line. So there is always a variation. Every run-up, every delivery is, in a sense, unique. But biomechanically, it's still hitting the same markers. So we talk about what shape is the player in at particular moments in order to understand whether they, they have control, they're in good shape, the forces are being executed well or not. So I understand the perspective that there is um, no prescribed movement model that you can just lift and fit. But there are biomechanical markers of performance that are consistent you know, for successful performance. And we've often, in a cricket sense, you know, talked about the idiosyncrasies of um, what's his name, the, the Australian cricketer, Steve? Smith. Yeah. Now, at the moment of impact, though, most of the time, biomechanically, he's in really good shape. Prior to the moment of impact, he might have all these funky movements. But at the at the moment of impact on the ball, he's biomechanically in good shape. Often I've seen in cricket presentations, people use Brian Lara as an example with his, with his back lift. Yeah, you know, which you won't find in any coaching book anywhere. But at the moment of impact, he's biomechanically doing everything right, and that's why he was so successful. So part of um, uh, the challenge is, as a student of movement, is knowing what doesn't need to change because it doesn't matter, but what does need to change because if it's not biomechanically within. Uh, the the range of performance is biomechanically sound will cause a problem it could be what alan launder referred to as a dead-end technique which will only take you so far or it could actually be putting stress on the body that if that movement was continued over a long period of time would lead that athlete to break down so it needs to be remodeled because it's not going to be one that is sustainable for the athlete to keep doing so how are you going
0: to remodel that then is it possible to do it through uh we've got an expert athlete they've gone through the um the novice ideas of uh, you've got to hit that target 10 times they're beyond that now but you've now realized that they need to remodel because things are going wrong it's looking dangerous what what would be the process in from from your experience given that first of all, you're spending a lot of time writing about these things and researching it, and then also you're actually going onto the field and working with the athletes at the, at the time. So h- how would you approach that?
1: Mm. And whether you approach it from creating certain conditions that require a particular movement solution, or whether you call that a drill. As a coach, when I look at it, it looks like the same thing it looks like an isolated practice. There might be a theory that says we've put certain conditions in place that constrain certain um, movement potential in order to focus on a particular way of doing things, providing a direct link to the affordances in the environment. Or you could explain it by saying that I've uh, pretty much prescribed the movement model in very general terms. Um, through this drill, the outcome is still going to be the same. If you go back and you have a look at when Dennis Lilly broke down with his back injury in the 70s and had to have his action remodelled, there's a lot of biomechanical analysis. There's a lot of isolation out to um, particular movements that need to be uh, reshaped. And again, I use that word deliberately. It's about what shape the athlete is in at particular moments because we're analysing the lines of forces that are acting on the body, acting on the implements. And in order to change those lines of forces, we need to change, in order to change the forces, we need to change the lines that those forces are operating under. So it's a, it's a biomechanical analysis at its heart. And that biomechanical analysis will lead you to be directing the player to change their movements away from what they're currently doing to something else. Now, if you could put in that in an exploratory framework and play around with different movements until you find the one that best fits. Or as a coach, you could say I don't have the player and I do not have time to go through an exploration and we'll pretty much arrive at the same solution anyway from a biomechanical perspective. We'll prescribe the biomechanics, look for the shape of the athlete and we'll worry about the things that matter and if there's um if there are movements that don't actually affect the performance we don't necessarily need to change it so it's
0: perfectly possible that you may say to a player uh, i've been watching the kicking uh, that you've been doing and you can see that it's moving off to the left when you want it to be going straight you could pretty much say put the ball in this shape in your hands or drop the ball in this way rather than say uh what do you think if you tried this i mean it it, you've not got to know the athlete to know that you either you can sometimes you can just tell them and sometimes you've got to let them explore so it's not one way to do it it is the way that you feel at that moment works for that athlete
1: yeah it's a it's knowing the communication with the athlete and how the athlete receives the information and how to best package that information for that athlete And there's a sociocultural dimension to that as well. There are some cultures that expect the teacher as the authority to be able to tell you what to do. And that's how they're socialised into the learning relationship. So it's going to be very difficult to come in and ask lots of questions because they're expecting you to tell. And if you can't tell them, there's a loss of respect and a loss of face because you are expected to be the person who knows it. And because you are the person who knows it, you're expected to tell them. Um, You know, a coach developer that worked internationally that I worked with talked about going, if you're a a blue coach working in an orange country, you can't come in with your blue coach thinking and try and force it on the orange learners. You've got, if you think the blue coach way is the best way, you've got to gradually introduce that. Otherwise, you've got cultures backing up against each other. It's not going to work. Similarly, if you're an orange culture coach coming into a blue culture, you don't come in full on with your orange culture because you'll get pushback. No, that's not the way we do things. So you've got to introduce it gradually if you're convinced that is the way. To give, you, uh, to give you an analogy, when I went into a school to change the PD program, after consulting with the staff who said to me, we need to do things differently because it's not working at this school. Once we decided what we were going to do differently, we didn't change the program from year eight to year 12 we changed it at year eight because the kids coming into the school year eight being the first year in the school those kids coming in didn't know any other way so that was that was the way but if we brought that in with the year 9s 10s 11s and 12s they'd be like, so how do you do things what are you new people doing so over a five year period we completely changed the culture of physical education and the pedagogical practice but we did it in a stepped approach. Start with the new kids at year eight. Then when they become year nine and year ten, year eleven. By the time they get to year twelve, the whole the whole program, whole approach now is just this is the way we do things. It's it's the same when you're working with the players. You've you've got to think um, strategically about the communication style of the individuals that you're working with, and work out that a particular communication style may be received differently with that athlete than what it is with this athlete. So therefore, you may need to change that communication style to be more effective with this other athlete.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously we're not uh, suggesting that uh, the the player learns uh, in a different way. You just need to understand where they've come from to get, to get to where you are in order that you you give them the information which they're comfortable to receive. At, at that moment. And uh, that's a lot around also about teaching styles as well. So I just want to move on slightly uh, different question, which is what we've talked about a little bit uh, about before, is that in your experience, what are the main traps that coaches fall into when they're using the game based approach? I think we've, you've probably started answering it by with the orange coach with the blue team. Mm-hmm. But what are the other
1: main traps? The main one is the game doesn't have a purpose. Whether we're sports coaching or PE teaching, the education science tells us that being explicit on the learning outcome and the success criteria powers up the rate of learning because the learners know exactly what's expected and to what degree is good enough to meet the standard of performance that's expected. So we call this explicit teaching. Um, I see you're about to ask a question there.
0: Yeah, no, I am. I was going to put my hand up, actually. Uh, You could see me. Well, I was going to ask then, is that um, do you then say before you start the game, this is what we want from the game? Or do you sometimes say, right, we're going to play a game and let's find out what you might find out from it? Almost like uh, you're going to go through and say, ah, that's why that works. So do you use a mix of the approaches or are you quite clear? Right. The purpose of this game is to. Deal with this, this, and this.
1: If the purpose is um, divergent discovery, so that we can work on our um, tactical creativity, and that's my purpose for that game, then I would go into that approach, going, "Let's play a game and see what happens. Right? And what are the what are the different operations that we can put into this game to be successful?
0: Right.
1: Right. Because my my purpose for the game is divergent discovery of possibilities. But if that's not my purpose, if my purpose is to converge on the action rules that bring um, symmetry to the team and anticipation so that we can make our decisions faster because we know what our teammate is likely to do, then I'll be using more convergent discovery. I still might be asking questions, but they're converging on our action rule and the behaviours that are consistent with our action rules to bring our team synergy, to bring our team action planning together.
0: Yep, right. So my hand up now because you can see my glasses. So uh, within that, so this is fascinating. Uh, we just so a lot of language in there about uh, things like convergent and uh, simulation. So can you just give us an example of what that? One might look like. So I've got an idea of the, the first one, where we're going to create some situations and we're going to try and discover what is our best way of doing this. So the, the second one, just give us some examples of how that might look. I know you're going to talk Aussie yeah. rules, but I'm sure that uh, we can, uh, for those rugby heads who know a little bit about it, will be able to see what's going
1: on. Uh, I'll use an Australian football example. So I'm in um in a congested area. Uh, near the boundary, and I want to exit the defensive end of the field. So one opportunity would be to play out a scenario and look at how the players deal with that scenario and through a series of questions start to ask, what are the different ways we can solve the problem of getting out of this dangerous area? Because if we lose possession of the ball here, the opposition scores. Or uh, I can say, because I'm time-constrained, I have a limited amount of time to set up my game plan. I can come in and I go, we might explore this with the players, but at the end of the day, the players will come to three decisions. I know they'll come to three decisions. So we can spend all this time exploring it. But at the at the end of it, there are three three possibilities here. I'm under pressure, so I surge the kick down the line towards the boundary. Boundary is my friend, and then we can flood that particular area. That's the defensive option get it as far away from goal, close to the boundary, and we just flood that area with numbers and get a restart down there if we don't win possession. Um, we get a loose player who's able to run into the middle corridor. We get a lead into the corridor, and now we're heading straight down to the goals. So if we get a player that strikes through the contest, gets the ball, run and carry, 60, 80-metre play, we've, we've transitioned out of our defensive third really quickly. Or... We need to open up space, so we'll shift lanes. We might go instead of out on the 45 with that break. If we don't have a player that we can get to, the right type of player, with the with the skill set, the athletic capability to be that run carrying long kick, then we might need to go sideways or backwards and actually shift what we might call lanes. So we're in a, in a lane at the moment near the boundary. We might need to shift two lanes to get it to the other side so we've got space to transition forward. So you've got is these the three, three you've got
0: these, you've got those three things. you know those? Do the players do you know, know those? those? As
1: a coach? Yeah, do the but players may not know those. So you're coming in with action rules and you'll go, if this is the situation, then you do this because we want this outcome. If this is the situation, then you do this because this will be the outcome. If this is the situation, then you do this because this will be the outcome. And then it's a matter of getting them to recognise the situation and matching situation to the solution.
0: All right, so the game, the game would be to create one of those three ifs and they would choose that if.
1: Yeah, but generally if you're doing match simulation, you don't know which one of the ifs are possible until the ball starts playing. Right. So the players need those action rules to help them with their decision-making. Right, Right. we've just won possession, but this is the situation, this is the outcome that we're desiring. Now, because it's an action rule for the team, the team knows it, they're anticipating it, we're likely to get to that next contest first and control it. And that's why we have action rules or um, team strategies to bring that anticipation so that we can make our um, decisions faster than the opposition can. Um, because we're in some sort of symmetry with our teammates. But to go back, um, yeah, you, know, you you need players with a fair degree of knowledge if you're going to walk up to them and go, you meant to kick the ball there, straight in front of you, but it went off 45 degrees to the right. What are three things that could have happened at your foot to cause it to go off to the right rather than straight ahead? Like three things that could have happened at my foot. Oh, I don't know. So there's a fair bit of knowledge, biomechanical knowledge, if anything, to understand what needs to happen at the foot for the ball to go straight, to understand what are the possibilities that could have happened to cause it not to go straight.
0: So uh, in terms of uh, the purpose, so we got the first purpose was discovery. The second purpose is uh, sort of like an an if-then Yep. So what are the other purposes that you might set out beforehand then?
1: Oh, look, we, we set out uh, a range of different purposes in a book that's coming out in November, Spectrum of Teaching Styles, where we've taken Mostyn's 11 Teaching Styles, which sets out the clear purpose of each teaching style, coming from direct instruction right through to um, players who are able to coach pretty much independently. They're able to coach themselves. Uh, and set out when each particular coaching style would be used because there's a particular purpose that it is well-suited to. And so I keep coming back to this notion of whether it be a game, game game-related, an open drill, which is game-like but not a game, the the key aspect is to, to be clear on what the learning intention is and does the pedagogy, direct instruction, peer teaching, a guided discovery, convergent discovery, does it actually deliver the learning outcome that you want for those players? Often, going back to your starting point, there's a mismatch between the the pedagogy or the mix of pedagogies and the learning outcome that the coach actually desires for the players. So it comes down to being really clear in your um, pre-session planning, thinking about matching the questions to what the learning intention is and being as deliberate with the planning of the instructional strategies as you are with the content that you want the players to experience. I think that from what I observed with coaches, my own experience, coming up with the activities of a coaching session is actually the easy part.
0: Hmm.
1: Coming up with how we're going to engage those brains in the learning so that we've got players who are better thinkers in the future than what they are now, That's actually more difficult. A lot of the time when I hear coaches asking players questions with good intent, they think they're stimulating new learning, whereas, in fact, they're just getting the players to recall what they already know.
0: Okay, and this is um, something I've observed and made a mistake myself is I've let the game go. I've stood back because I want to give the players space to explore Um, and really I need to be a lot more active. There's a, there's a mistaken expression that we want to make the coach redundant when in fact the coach is never redundant if they're a good coach, because they are, as you say, working really hard to work out when to intervene and what intervention makes sense. So, um, in, in the middle of a game, you come in with a question. That question has to be on point. So what would be an example of a question which is on point as opposed to a question which doesn't really crack the uh, crack the intention?
1: Without giving a specific example, because I, I actually want to you know, put the time into preparing, um, here's the coaching scenario. What I'll say is that often when questions are developed in the moment from the observation, that's when they miss the mark. So the coaches planned what they actually want the focus of that session to be what the learning is Mm. and then they're watching and they go i need to ask this question because i've just seen this Uh, but the question's not on point to what the learning intention of the practice task and the practice session was so it hasn't got the brain to focus in and what you want the brain to be focusing in yeah
0: which is the learning
1: intention of that session
0: isn't that just almost like the key point is that uh, this is the mistake I make I uh, observe is which is very important to see what's going on, but really I should still be asking the question that I prepared two hours earlier um, and maybe the tone of it changes a little bit based on the observation, but the actual the the intention of the question remains the same so if I want to talk about uh, the way that we exit from a certain situation and not then talking about oh and by the way your hand position was poor or we need to think about or what can you do differently with your hands
1: correct it's, because it's, the task wasn't the task wasn't focused on that yeah. hand position the focus was on how we're going to exit the ball because it was a the purpose was the ball movement
0: so uh, going back to something uh we said earlier and i must just say to any anyone who's listening, a couple of different recordings. So whether this actually came up in the previous one, which you're listening to, is that you may start a session with the game. um and I think what you talk about one of your uh, one of the people you've said, they may start the get session with the game and they may continue with the game throughout the session, um based on what is happening um Correct. and keep developing it. But you've got to still stick with almost the the four questions you were going to use in that session even if they start going off a diff, into a different avenue?
1: If if the player, if you think the, the direction of learning is going into a different avenue, you're getting feedback on your diagnosis of where the learning needs for the players were. You're getting feedback on whether you're acting on good data about what the players are actually needing, if you're finding if you're needing to go into a different direction. I think it was Eric Worthington in his book talked about uh, the mastery of Designing the game knowing the moment, the teaching moment. <laughs> and you let the game go waiting for that moment because that's the moment where the learning is. And then you freeze the play, you stop the play, you, you have your learning conversation, you ask your questions, shape and focus the players, thinking and understanding, extend them, et cetera, and go back out into play and then wait for the moment to come again and see whether the players have solved it or whether they're still m- uh, more learning. Now, often coaches come in and teachers too quick. You've got to stop and think and go, all right, is that a one-off or is that a habit? Or is there a deficit there because it keeps occurring? So it's, it's not the first time you see it necessarily that you go in and say, I need to fix it. You're actually looking to go, is there a knowledge gap here or is that just an error? We all make errors. Is that just a one-off error, or is that something that we need to come in and have a conversation about, do something with? Uh, sometimes we're too quick to jump in. You now, we need to observe and all the time be thinking, that observation is our data. What is it telling me? Mm. Do I need to do I- something now, or do I need to pause and wait and get a bit more data?
0: And that's uh, quite a brave coach to do that. And um, I, I, not that I get it right every time, but this happened last night in a training session where we were working on... Um, more effective passing against a drift defence and we we got in and we talked about it and the players identified uh, some things they were going to change and we went back into the exercise and initially things weren't going right and I was going to jump in and just re-emphasise another point but I managed to be brave enough to let it play and they they, they they got it which was good so in a sense I know it happens when you're brave but what I would then worry about is if the players take the, the game off into a different direction aren't you and you want them to stay on a path aren't you maybe reducing their chances to be creative because they are coming up with things which you hadn't thought of
1: yeah and that could be a good thing but again have you Have you wanted that creativity because that's where they are in their development? And if that's not what's planned for, you've got a judgment call to make about whether we're happy to sit with that and add that to our toolkit because they've actually added to my knowledge base. I didn't think about that. So you've actually got some feedback on your own knowledge base there Mm. if you didn't anticipate that outcome. Again, if we're designing the games purposefully, we shouldn't have a really good understanding of the outcomes that are possible from that game. Mm. And if there's an outcome that occurs in that game that we had thought of, that's good feedback about where we are in our knowledge of the game.
0: Yeah, and I think another thing is that we sometimes get confused uh, over novice versus expert players here. Novice players are unlikely to be creative in the sense that they're going to surprise us. They're not going to do something which we say, this is a movement solution I've never thought of or seen before because it's repetitive. But at an expert level, the, the players will be at such a level where they are standing on the shoulders of giants in terms of what they can do. And they might find a slightly different solution, which is what we might regard as really creative because it's not something that they or you have come, come up with. Whereas a novice player, creativity is something not novel for them. And you can say, oh, that's very good. That's a great way to pass, knowing in the back back of your mind uh, that that's that's one that I've seen a 100 times before and well done for jumping ahead of everybody else.
1: Yeah, it's creative to that individual and where they are in their their development, but it's not creative in terms of a completely novel solution to that particular game challenge. It's just Mm -hmm. novel to the individual. Yeah. Yeah, And we sometimes get get confused when we're watching games as to what novel and creativity is. And I've got this memory of um, uh, Riley McGee, I think it was, did a scorpion kick in an, in an a League game. And You know a scorpion kick, you've run past the ball, so in order to contact it, you bring your foot around the back like the tail of a scorpion to kick it and yeah. you scored a goal. I think it was the first time a scorpion kick had been used to score a goal. And, and of course, there's euphoria because of that's not been seen before in a game, and they flash to the coach's box and the coach is not looking happy at at (laughs) seeing that performance. And so at the end of the game, the coach is asked, how how could you not be excited about that goal? And he's gone, oh, he's been practising it, training for weeks, and I've been trying to get him to stop practising it at training. I've got no hope of getting him to stop practising that now. So two things there. That movement capability was already in his toolkit. It was uniquely applied in the moment. But he just didn't suddenly develop the capacity to do a scorpion kick. A scorpion kick was already part of his movement toolkit because he'd been practising it. And then the moment in the game occurred where he could actually execute what he'd been practising. It was learned ability, applied uniquely in the moment. Yes, uniquely assembled in the moment, but it was a practice learned ability that he, and not other players who hadn't practised it, had in his movement toolkit. There's a, there's another example that I often use in talks of a, a player at the Adelaide Football Club, Eddie Betts, who was renowned for for kicking goals from angles that most players wouldn't be able to get the ball through the goals. And his captain was asked about this remarkable ability to kick these amazing goals. And he's gone, well, he practises them. He practises them before training. He practises them after training. He's he's always practising those things. So, again, it's not that it's uniquely assembled in the moment in terms of it's never been rehearsed or practised before. It's part of his movement toolkit that he's been able to apply uniquely to that situation because that situation is unique. But if he didn't already have that learned ability in his movement toolkit, he wouldn't be able to uniquely apply it in that moment.
0: Mm. So it's uh, it's the difference between problem-solving and decision. Uh, What works and what doesn't work, and the decision is in the moment on the pitch Ah, scorpion kick opportunity. Going to use it, and uh, that that is uh, that is something that we've we we talk about uh, players trying to become better decision makers, and probably we need to help them have lots of chances to solve problems. And I think you've said it before is that they recognise patterns, shapes, and then they can see ah if this is the case, then will we use this? Now it will be slightly different version of maybe what they've done in training. Uh, but it will be a sort of version which they probably used before, not necessarily, but probably used before.
1: I think that's a good way of describing it. It's unique to the moment, but it's a version of something that they've done before. so it's it's in one sense familiar, but in another sense completely unfamiliar because it's unique to the moment because that moment mm. has never occurred before. But moments yeah. similar to it have occurred. Before at practice, and that comes back to uh, again. I think it was uh, Rick Charlesworth in his book talked about, uh, there there aren't moments in the game that the players shouldn't have practiced over and over again, uh, shouldn't have experienced through practice at training. So the role of the coach is to provide that experience. So when that moment occurs in the game, the pro- the players going, I know what to do.
0: Mm. Uh, but also isn't then the challenge for the coaches to create moments that the opposition had never seen before?
1: Exactly. But then, yeah, the challenge for the coach, and I'll use an example of a, a team that I worked with here. We planned pre-season for, let's say, game style A. But by the time we got to the end of the first round, everybody had seen game style A. So during the first round, we're also working on game style B. Mm-hmm. And in particular, when we go from game style A to game style B and then back to game style A again. Mm. While they're coming into the finals round, we'd actually started to work on game style C, <laughs> which the teams hadn't seen before. And so players, we had particular calls uh, and signs and certain players were able to initiate it on the ground. When was game style A? We might just call that normal. When was game style B? When was Game Style C?
0: And uh, in in that shows uh, that and um, these these moments are are really important because there are pictures that you see in your mind and you think, ah, right, I can see that. That's that's what I do. And I think anyone who's played a lot of sport will will recognise that they they unconsciously do something because it's 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 the right thing to do because it just feels right in that moment and I suppose uh the more that we can create that feeling if that's such a thing then then the better anyway I'm going to um uh wrap things up there Shane because we've we've done about 15 different efforts at this recording so we've probably been on for about four hours um uh, I don't know how much we're gonna be able to uh, put together but because there's loads of more questions I want to uh Uh, come to is this or anything that you just like a a closing thought you would say for coaches to say right if I'm 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 biased because I'm a great believer in using games as much as possible and I'm all the time trying to develop how I use them is there one thing that you would say to coaches as a pointer to to make sure that either they restart or rethink or just make sure that they are Doing the right things in terms of using games in coaching and training and learning.
1: The best advice that was provided to me back in the 90s was just give it a go and don't be worried about if it's right or wrong. And I think that language that you've got the approach right or wrong is not the way to go about it. The coaches are learning just as the players are learning. So coaches need to be encouraged to be brave, to be fearless and experiment in order to be better tomorrow than they are today. And that better is getting um, enhanced outcomes for their players, their athletes. If we want our players to be brave and push their abilities and continue to learn, then we as coaches need to be brave and continue to push what we're doing. And I encourage PE teachers and coaches to actually be bold in front of their groups and saying, I'm trying something. Read mm-hmm. this, reckon it's a great idea, I'm gonna try it. If it if it goes belly up, it goes belly up. That's okay. So mm-hmm. modeling to the players, training is a time to be brave and push your abilities. Mm-hmm. That's the only way you're gonna get better. And if, you know, if the coach puts it into practice and it doesn't work, that doesn't mean it was necessarily a bad idea. It just maybe means that that wasn't the group to try it with. It might have worked with a different different group. So it's not dismissing it. It's actually that reflective practice to go, was it a bad idea or an idea that wasn't ready for that group? Um, so just give it a go you know, and give it a go. Small steps, start maybe with game-based activities. Uh, at, a particular stage of training rather than at the end of training as the culmination of training, as we will play a game at the end, if you've tried hard, we get through everything and you're good. The game's not the reward. The game is what we're there for. To be better at it. We can't be better at it if we're not doing it. So if the game is what we want to be better at, the game is what we need to be doing more of. Mm. So think of it from that point of view is what I would encourage too.
0: Um I the game a the reward, things,
1: yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of things that we could be discussing, like Daniel Vermert's idea of inattentional blindness that, again, changes the perception capabilities of players um, and narrows their, their capability for action. If we're not playing games, the majority of it is very scripted movement patterns with only single solutions. Um, so there's so much that could be explored in this space, but I think it's a matter of getting a go, getting some confidence, and for me, possibly the um, the best starting point is to start training with games and using small-sided games, five-a-side, six-a-side, eight-a-side, different variations of small-sided games with a particular focus to test where players' abilities are at, to give you mm. feedback on are the players where you think they should be. So they're, a, they're an assessment tool for you at the start of training.
0: Mm. Well, Shane, uh, that's... Well, first of all, within that, there's a podcast about uh, the whole of those last three things you've said. Um, Apart from everything else, well, I've really enjoyed a very extended chat, um, and lots lots for everyone to pick out. Um, If people want to find out more about what you're doing, um, where where would be the best place for them to go?
1: I'm on Twitter, um, and LinkedIn are the two professional spaces. That you'll find me engaging with people, probably more so in LinkedIn these days than on Twitter. Uh, And of course, you can hunt down my university uh, page very easily. Google Shane Pill, Flinders University, and you'll get my email address from the Flinders page. And you can email me to start up a conversation as well.
0: Great. There are also lots of uh, papers I shall make, put some links on the blurb as well. So thanks again to Shane for his extended time on this um, rather jumpy in terms, not the actual podcast itself, the, uh, the jumpy internet. And, uh, for everyone who's listening, in, thank you very much. If you want to find out more about what we've been talking about and more about the podcasts from Rugby Coach Weekly, go over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the podcast button or visit, um, your normal podcast provider. So thanks again, Shane. I
1: appreciate the opportunity. Been a really good conversation. Uh, Hopefully it it gets pieced together quite well, because uh, (laughs) I have some people wondering why we've changed backgrounds and formats.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, the good news is that we won't be showing the video um, because (laughs) I've got all my washing in the background there. Um, And um, great uh, to have the conversation. Lots to pick out and uh, definitely more to uh, talk about in the future. Uh, Thanks very much, everybody. And goodbye.
1: Thanks for listening to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the Blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport, and learning.